My Namala, that's what we call our birth mums, she paints the stars. She painted me this story once about the Milky Way. She drew this massive body of water in the sky. It's where we live for eternity, where all these tiny little fish that just swim up in there. And when the time comes to go down to Earth, we get to pick who our parents are. You choose your armour, you know? Welcome to Not In Print, the podcast from Currency Press, where we talk to playwrights and theatre makers about their ideas, their work and their inspiration. I'm Caitlin Doyle-Markwick and in this episode I spoke with S. Shakti Dharan, or Shakti. Shakti is a writer, director, musician and producer of film and theatre, who grew up in Western Sydney and has Sri Lankan heritage and Tamil ancestry. He's also the co-founder and artistic director of the Western Sydney arts company, Karinji. The extract you just heard is from Shakti's debut play as a writer, Counting and Cracking, which was co-authored with Belvoir Street Theatre's Eamon Flack and has just been published by Currency Press. The play, which received loads of awards including the New South Wales and Victorian Premier's Literary Awards, is an epic piece of work that spans from the 1950s to the early 2000s and is written in three different languages, Tamil, Sinhalese and English. When I started the process of researching for the play, which essentially was talking to lots and lots of Sri Lankans here in Australia and around the world, you know, the version of Sri Lanka that's in the history books and in the media and, and really how it's talked about in community in terms of shorthand is, is, is of a country that has suffered through a multi-decade civil war and is a divided country. You know, a divided island is is often how Sri Lanka is talked about. And I thought that would be the artwork that I would be making. But then listening to the community, a different kind of Sri Lanka emerged. And I talked to people who were like, come here as refugees and who were, you know, fruit sellers at Flemington markets. And I talked to people who were the confidants of ex-prime ministers, you know, in cricket clubs in Colombo and such a widespread of people. But amongst them all was a kind of vision of Sri Lanka which was much more nuanced and overlapping and it became clear that the seeds of this what was to become the civil war were planted many decades earlier and they were to do with not a cultural division between two different ethnicities but to do with how power is wielded and creating differences where there don't have to be any in order to to accrue more power and that wasn't a story that had been told enough about our country and then it just felt so relevant to what's happening in a lot of western democracies now no not just the u.s but in so many places and kind of a condemnation of that politics of division coupled with a, a people's history of what that time was like felt like the first time I realized what the play might be about. Throughout all this process, my mum was saying that this was a really dumb idea and didn't want me to do it. And I went to Sri Lanka against her wishes. And I remember sitting with my un an uncle in his house in Colombo and talking to him about all of this and him revealing that he's, he had my great grandfather's letters. And we sat and read them. And, and many of the letters were to his grandchildren and some were published in, in papers at the time. 
and I learned that my great grandfather was born a farmer and um, went to boarding sc- English boarding school and eventually to Oxford and came back and was um, a politician and he was a eloquent campaigner for equality in Sri Lanka and saw that fail and had become quite a hard-nosed uh, speaker for, for, for the necessity of Tamil people in Sri Lanka to, to defend themselves um, by the end of his life. And he died heartbroken with the, you know, when civil war was breaking out. And suddenly all of the intellectual and social ideas that I was looking at and all the things that people have been talking to me about became very real and became part of my family's history. And the fact that I didn't know that was part of my family's history kind of shocked me in the, the, the kind of way that you can tell a nation's modern history through the story of one of its families kind of clicked for me. That, that kind of led me to understanding how to, how to tell this play. You know, it is epic, but I'm not sure we can begin to understand why violence sometimes occurs in our societies without our society becoming capable of learning to be cognizant that the seeds for that are planted many decades before the violence actually occurs. Yeah, I mean, it can be extraordinarily difficult, to say the least, to write about these tumultuous political uh, political events and, and present them in a play, but I think you've achieved that really wonderfully and you, you weave in these moments of intimacy and, and family and small daily joys alongside really enormous events, you know, things like talking about a young woman's pregnancy one moment and her food cravings yeah. <laughs> through that pregnancy and then suddenly cinnamon switching buns, to... Staple yeah, of Sri Lankan food. Cinnamon buns, exactly. <laughs> and then the next moment there's the beginnings of um, some of the early anti-Tamil riots in, in Colombo, so those things sit really nicely alongside each other, I think. I mean, I think for... Uh, some people, a lot of people in Australia, the events in the play would seem quite remote. It's possible that a lot of people here in Australia only hear about Tamil and, and Sri Lankan people around the, the very fraught political question of, of refugees in Australia. And it, you know, I'm sure it's not a coincidence that the, the play begins in the early 2000s, which was a time when there were quite a few Tamil refugees seeking safety and asylum in Australia. And, and in a sense, you work you work backwards from that from that point to sort of move back to where the, the the seeds of that conflict began and also the seeds of you know what eventually compelled people to you know make their way to to Australia so i i mean i wonder in in terms of the writing did you always intend to write it non chronologically in this way or was that something that emerged as a necessity when you were trying to pull the threads of that history together you know the play ends at in in Villawood detention center and I've definitely wanted to put a human face on that, the the journey that asylum seekers take, and I'm not the only one who's done that. And we need to do it hundreds of times, you know, to have an impact. And I'm glad to be part of the many people who are doing that. But I also wanted to kind of put it into context where it's a a real thing that a family is grappling with, you know. And rather, the central character in the play is doesn't want to speak to her husband when she finds out that he wants to come to Australia. There's this unspoken thought process I think that is like we are a wealthy country and how lucky it is for anyone to come here when in fact you know the reality is that people don't want to leave their homelands and they're not coming here to take from Australia they're coming here because they can no longer 
be a human being with dignity in in the homeland that they don't want to leave and the gap between that and what it takes to get here means that they have the capacity to really help grow this country and there's a lot we could gain from being more open to what those kinds of people could give to here there's very little it's really only a question of wealth and class between the kinds of people that can come here as a skilled migrant and those have to come here as an asylum seeker and both of those types of people exist in the central family in the play and it's really you know there's not as much that divides us in terms of it's it's it comes down to certain twists of fate and chance i think between the way you might be able to choose how you come to another place or might not in terms of the chronology there was like a million ways <laughs> that this play was ordered um that was probably one of the hardest things to tackle with the play i wrote the sri lankan scenes first and wrote them in chronological order there's so much at stake in those scenes and the thing i was the most terrified about and the thing i wanted to honor the most was the relationship of the play with it with the sri lankan community and our, our history is contentious <laughs> as as it is in any country that has a multi-decade war and so um i knew that those were the most difficult scenes in terms of what they were trying to pull off part of the play is um using the act of theater to show things about life in two very different types of societies that you don't need to say in words but you can do through through bodies on stage and so i always knew that i wanted to bounce between sri lanka and australia because rather the this family's life in sri lanka is communal and everyone gathers on the front porch of this house and like you said there's 16 actors in the play and so those three scenes that are in sri lanka there's there's their big scenes that go for like you know 30 minutes or more each and all in one setting are kind of um full of life you know they're kind of full of the a type of society that gathers and discusses and is not subdivided and has the energy and and chaos of of a society that values those things and then it kind of bounces into i really wanted to contrast to go between that and then the subdivision of suburban life in australia you know where everyone lives not on their front porches but indoors and things are in small family units or broken family units and people have to negotiate so much on their own or with just one other person and you get benefits from that you get privacy you get a certain type of individual freedom but you lose so much as a result and so it's it's not in the words of the play but cementing that goal of the play helped me a lot with figuring out the structure and and how to bounce between those things and i guess the other thing that helped me a lot with structure was um in the order of the scenes was what it takes for someone to meet a buried pain and so earlier you asked me about the process of writing the play in terms of talking to the community and so i said my mother was really against it and um i sent her the first draft of the play when i finished it and via email and she must have found her own safe space to read it and she stopped telling me it was a really stupid idea after that and slowly she started to open up and when i went to development with belvoir we invited her along to the development weeks and strangers would ask her questions 
And that was when I, the first time I heard her start talking about Sri Lanka, you know, because it's hard to, it's kind of harder to refuse a stranger in a professional setting than it is your son, you know, which makes, it makes total sense. And that changed the play, you know, so later drafts of the play would have a lot of the things she started opening up about. And all of that helped a lot with structure because essentially rather is someone who her heart is broken by her country. And then she has, she deals with that by burying the pain and confronted with the ghost of her husband that she thought was dead. She has to either continue to bury that pain or to meet it. And her process of meeting the truth of what happened to her in Sri Lanka and why they left and allowing that to circle back to being able to be vulnerable with her son again and for that to play like a pivotal role in the plot in how the family is reunited is also the structure of the play. And it was really powerful for us because it's the process my mother went through in helping her reconcile with her homeland, but was also is also the process, I think, for a lot of Sri Lankan community members who saw the play, you know, which was enjoying all that life you talked about at first. You know, the opening scene is a mum shouting at her son, which is a pretty regular feature of our life. And then feeling very kind of confronted about things that start to open up in there. And I think probably a lot of Sri Lankan community members probably wanted to leave, you know, at some point. And then deciding to stay with it and it becoming like a, a quite a healing process. How important was it for you to draw in or or include the, the Sri Lankan community in the the presentation of this of this play and i think it, it has to be said as well that there's you do very much get a sense of lots of different voices being drawn into the story and several stories being being told at once there's certainly a sense of you can tell that the background research to the play is all there in a kind of oral history type way but uh, to go back to my question I'm, I'm curious about what it meant to you to bring the sri lankan community into the theater there is definitely a lot of the influence of the kind of practice of oral history in that play. And there is a great spread of voices and that's all definitely on purpose. And the, you know, there's a kind of couple of light bulb moments I had during writing the play that helped me out with thinking about the relationship we could have with my community in looking at why we had a civil war. There is so much in our world which is a way of thinking where people like to say this happens because of this and there's a version there's, there's historians re researching Sri Lanka and then listening to people as well I came up with a different way of looking at history and I encountered historians who employ this as well who talk about the idea that the way that things are interdependent upon each other has a lot more to do with why something happens than any one of those reasons alone. There's a quote which um, South Asians tend to, authors have used it, I think Ondachi's used it, Arundhati Roy has used it, I'm paraphrasing, I can't remember exactly, but it's something like, never again will a story be told like it's the only one. I don't know why South Asians use it more, because maybe there's just two billion people in one part of the planet 
brings that kind of thinking around more. But I really believe in that idea. I think that the collision of things, they're equally powerful as what any one ingredient happens to be. And so we can't properly understand the tale of a country unless we understand how so many things intersected. And so like, like that is a huge part of the play. So I knew then that the play couldn't be for just one part of the Sri Lankan community. Like if I was to carry that dramaturgical idea through to the audience, then the audience for this play had to be all of our community and it had to be about, you know, both the the glorious thing of that, which is many truths existing on the stage at once, but also the mess of that, you know. And the second light bulb moment I had was kind of one of the things, the play took an enormous amount of time to reach the stage because it's really expensive (laughs) and hard to cast and difficult to write. (laughs) So one of the benefits of that was I got to see the effect it had on people. I got to see the effect it had on my mother. I got to see the effect it had on people who were auditioning. It was a really powerful effect. What I started to see was that there were people who might disagree with parts of the play, but would stick with it and found it a very moving experience. And I started to realize that there's something very powerful about a group of very different parts of a community being able to gather around a history of a nation and say, yes, this is something we will all, is enough for us all to therefore discuss who we are and what we are and what our future will be. And I might not agree with some of it. I might agree with all of it, but I'm not walking out of the conversation. That might not be the same kind of consensus people get in their own little tribes, but there's some kind of greater power there, which is, I think, the only way we can build reconciliation or peace or those big ideas. So that was very much, you know, the hope that it could be a different space from different parts of my community to be able to heal in in their own ways and talk to each other after the show. That seems to be something that was sort of structured into the show, the bringing together of people. You even integrated, you know, serving Sri Lankan food to, to yes. your audience and you encouraged your audience members to talk to each other during um, during the interval. Yeah. Um, so that's very much a, a part of the experience, which yeah. is quite unique as well, but also not necessarily different to theatre and performance in its earlier or, tr- or traditional forms. Yeah, I think it's very much more about what theatre used to be like as an essential part of a community. The play went, was at Town Hall and its first lines are in Tamil, you know, which means that the people who can speak Tamil in the audience know what's happening before. We had this thing where other actors would translate the lines into English before the English is said. And I love that because it, within the first seconds of the script and the production, you have to go through a process where you you realize, I hope, that not all of this play will be for you and some of it is absolutely for you and some of it is about knowing that others need to hear what's happening and to have that in a room for three and a half hours and for everyone to be accepting of that is a really is a really great thing. You mentioned the question of chance and the role of chance in our lives and there is a um, there's a moment in the play where Radha is sort of musing on, you know, if she'd made a different decision at a different time or if 
something mm. had gone slightly differently, just how wildly different her, her life would be. And there is, there's this constant sort of tension in the play, I guess, between how much the seemingly insignificant decisions that we make and chance play in our lives versus the, you know, the grand sweep of history. At the end of the play, Rather says, if I'd stayed in Sri Lanka for just two more weeks, I might never have left. And um, that's something my mother said during one of the developments. I'm very engaged in political thoughts here in Australia and do things that you might class as sometimes people who are activists do. And um, I just wonder what would have happened if I'd grown up in, a, in Sri Lanka and had been like that. You know, I might not be alive. I also remember I worked in a refugee camp in um, India full of Sri Lankan people from Sri Lanka who'd come as refugees and meeting people who were, who'd been there for over 30 years and just wondering, you know, the line between Thiru and Radha and their different ways of coming to Australia is um, not many things have to change in your life to have one person's fate over the other. So with a few different things different in my family's life, I could have been one of those families in, in that refugee camp in India. And I just think what it makes me think about is we really should all be much more forgiving of each other and ourselves than we are. The reasons we have become inflexible about whatever each of us have decided to become inflexible about are so human in the end. And they are absolutely understandable if because of what our experience has been up until that point. And that means that we should be able to and willing to bend those seemingly inflexible things. If we can understand how much of our life could be different just for small decisions or, or small circumstances that are out of our control, I think we would remembering that more often would help us a lot with breaking down seemingly intractable things in our psychology or in our society. According to Amama, that mass of stars and galaxies is a dolphin in the sky and the Milky Way is its belly. And all that movement, the flow of the stars, Amama calls it the Ganges of the sky. So we have Baralku and you have the Ganges. Water and water, Amama always used to say. Water and water, down here, up there, and in here too. It's all one thing, you know. My great-grandfather was a mathematician, and he was a brilliant one, and he, um, there's a scholarship at Oxford named after him, and now that I have you know, opened up a lot more with my family about Sri Lanka. There's a quote they say a lot about um, him that I'm paraphrasing, but, um, you know, he, he failed as a politician, you know. He wasn't able to, uh, him and his contemporaries were not able to stop what happened in terms of the war. And, and there's a quote he apparently said, which is when someone accused him of being a failure and he said, yes, because uh, I'm a, I was a failure as a politician, but a success as a mathematician because I always told the truth. And... This relationship between the perfection that is possible in mathematics and the perfection that is possible in idealism, <laughs> I think, plagued him. I don't know. I've never, I'll never be able to talk to him, but I feel like it plagued him from his letters. 
politics is a mess and the way society works out its problems is a mess. And um, I think that gap really plagued him. I was really interested in that gap <laughs> that, that we all have as humans, like between what our ideals are like and the, the parts of society like maths and engineering, which allow us to think that we can manifest ideals and the fact that the trickiest parts of uh, meeting ourselves honestly, meeting our families honestly, and meeting our societies honestly cannot exist in that way of thinking. We have to find another way to, to proceed with and deal with mess. So the title Counting and Cracking is actually drawn from a quote that comes up in the play. Can you tell me what that quote is and what it means? The quote is... Um, Democracy is the counting of heads within certain limits and the cracking of heads beyond those limits. And that's that's a direct quote from my great-grandfather. There were two levels to the play for me. One was the personal level and one was the, the sweep of history, as you said. And that, that just summarized the sweep of history level for me. You know, I think he's talking about the things where that democracy can handle and the things that end up being beyond its ability to handle. Our responsibility, I think, as citizens on the small level is to remember that we can't take something like democracy for granted and if we don't nurture it, it will go, you know. And so what are the things in our individual lives that we do that play our own small part in that collective nurturing? And I remember with Eamon, we were trying to kind of boil the play down to one line on the small level and it took us ages and I remember like that we finally figured out and it was can we live together or not <laughs> <laughs> and um you know that's that's kind of like the small version of that that big quote there's a really beautiful conversation quite early in the play between Sid and and Lily where they talk about and I think this really sets the scene for the whole play the the way that bodies of water around the world eventually meet each other somewhere you know you talk about these rivers in in the south of Sydney in Arnhem Land and in Sri Lanka and obviously the you know all of the ocean in between and there's a interconnectedness of, of all of these places ultimately and that you know there is a contrast there obviously with the political barriers that that are borders of course so that's a, a sort of interesting theme I think that runs through the play but I wanted to also talk about the connection or commonality that you establish with Lily who is a, a First Nations woman from Arnhem Land and Sid and maybe what what you saw the commonality being between their two worlds or experiences. That relationship with the play has also come out of lived experience. A good friend of mine is um, Rosalie Pearson she's a younger woman who lives in Yurikala from Arnhem Land. And I remember having a beer with her once at, at the Cordy in Newtown and telling her I read this article about there being DNA matches between um, South Asians and Northern Australians from 4,000 years ago. And I just found that amazing and that, that there must have been people in contact then between those two regions of the world um, for that to, to be the case. And... Rosie said that was that was my family that they tested and I just felt like history and time collapse and the the kind of fact that we could be having a beer at, at a pub in Newtown and maybe our ancestors you know exchanged something on the shores of Arnhem Land felt very close to me and and kind of was a way of tackling 
supposedly great arcs of time <laughs> and history. And I've always felt really at home working with Indigenous communities and being in those communities. Their aunties remind me of the women in our community kind of sitting on mats on the ground to, to sort out stuff, reminded me of our communities and the kind of good and bad of people gossiping about you and knowing your name and all sorts of levels of intra-community complexity reminded me of my community and all that time I spent with Indigenous communities is such a deep part of the space with which I can identify as Australian and they've always welcomed me into those communities and that act of welcome is such a deep part of how I'm able to feel like I'm an Australian and there's something there to do with there's a restlessness that's part of being a migrant you know you it's always a part of you that's somewhere else and there is something there to do with a way of being welcomed that helps if not halt allay that restlessness slightly and I became very interested while writing the play in a in a process of there being a difference between two types of Australia's one which asks people who come to it to, to limit who they are to fit in and another which um, invites people to bring all of themselves to to grow the country that we are and obviously it would be didactic to say that <laughs> in the script but I just felt like the metaphor of the water really was a lovely way of symbolizing that idea and that we may not be able to be in our homelands anymore but it is worth trying to find ways to bring everything we can of ourselves and what those places were into Australia to expand its idea of what it can be the fact that uh, a really concrete way that this often manifests itself in people who have relationships between cultures is like where are they going to live you know and um and so it, it's easy for that to become a dichotomy between one place versus another and migrants struggle with that a lot between the homeland and the place that they live in and it's and i i, I was really interested in the question of 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 looking at it outside of that dichotomy and going how can one place be incorporated into another to change what the new place is? And I felt like that was how water worked. Thanks for listening to Not In Print. This episode was produced by me, Caitlin Doyle-Markwick, with music by Grace Turner. Thank you also to Sabrina Chan D'Angelo and Curly Fernandez for reading the extracts from Counting and Cracking for this podcast. To get a copy of Counting and Cracking, head over to currency.com.au.